0: You're listening to Africa's Business Rockstars Podcast with Nefa Ahoy, a show that shares the stories of successful Africans in business and how they did it. It's our story told our way to inspire our people. This podcast is sponsored by IDS Consultant Ghana Limited, a company dedicated to supporting small and medium-sized enterprises with accounting and business advisory services at an affordable rate. Visit www.idsconsultantga.com
1: to learn more. I wanted an attractive cover. I wanted a book that would sell itself if it was sitting on a shelf. And I wanted something that wouldn't look out of place if it was on a shelf in Europe or America.
0: Hello and welcome to Africa's Business Rockstars. Now our guest today started a movement for african millennial women and it has us excited like me especially you know about making smart money decisions She has two best-selling books to her name the smart money woman and the smart money tribe And she's our guest today on Africa's business rock stars. Hello RSA and welcome to Africa's business Rockstars. Hi, how are you? Thank you so much okay. for having me. Thank you so much for honoring our invitation like I said in the introduction, you do you're known popularly, you know, for Smart Money Woman and Smart Money Tribe. But I'm sure people would like to know, you know, how did it all begin? So for us, just tell us about the young, you know, RSA, um, growing up as a child, did you have any idea that this is who you would be?
1: <laughs> Absolutely not. <Okay>. Um, <laughs> but as a child, I would you know how looking back now, I kind of see how you could that, you can kind of map out like, oh my God, I can see how all these different experiences kind of got me here. Okay. So first of all, both my parents were bankers. So I grew up in a household where the capital markets were discussed a lot. So I, I, I feel like that contributed to how conversational I became about talking about investments because it was always like sort of like, It was something that me and my dad discussed a lot when when I was growing up. Like I would read the newspaper and have to tell him, you know, my analysis of what had been said. And I just, I was really into it, like for absolutely no reason. Um, So I think when you take an interest in something and you're, you know, you're reading about it and you're learning about it for such a long period of time, it kind of becomes, you know, I guess easier for you than other people, like so, where other people. Find you know talking about capital markets as something that is like daunting, yeah, Yeah. that boring. It was it was easy for me. It was or easier for me just because we had had those conversations growing up, and I guess because obviously I was a child, you had to break down that financial jargon in a way that I could understand. So it just I I feel like it kind of informs all the stuff that I do now, which is basically breaking down financial jargon in um an african context and you know making it relatable to african millennial women we're
0: still sticking on the childhood path I mean, especially when you make reference to you know having to break it down for for you the young the young i would say to to basically understand so what's one of those things that has always stuck you know in your mind where you saw something you read it had a conversation with your dad and you said this this sounds like gibberish can you just explain to me what they're saying
1: Um, I guess that was probably a lot of things, but I think one of the first ones was about demand and supply and how that affects price and, and the markets and what this means for each say stock, if the price goes up, if it goes down, what could possibly be happening and basically just learning to navigate all those different things. Mm, mm, mm. Okay.
0: So from morning to evening at home, was it always finance, 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 you know, (laughs) (laughs) at um at the table for breakfast, for dinner, was it always financial talk?
1: <laughs> no, 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 definitely not. Um that just became a thing, you know, with me and my dad that was kind of like my family we weren't just talking about finance the whole time, but it was a fun thing that me and my dad, you know, could do together. Yeah. Then yeah. go on holidays, we used to go yeah, family vacations were a big thing for us. Mm. We used to get treated every time we did like you know well in school you could pick any you know what you wanted like it was a whole like thing like if you did well in school then you had a right to say oh yeah I want this or I want that like within and just you know trips like on the weekends to like restaurants as a family those were always fun. And in the past on some guests that we've had on the
0: show you know mentioned stuff like so if you come home with a grade like 95, you know, then mm. the, the mom was asking her, why did the other person who got 100 have two heads? You know, why are you coming home with 100? <laughs> Why one a one hundred? You know, so was it something of the sort and for you when you say if you did good, you had a treat, you know, what was good? And did you have to you know like, so tell
1: yourself, you know? you know? You know what's so interesting? There's four of us, right? Yeah. I'm actually the dumbest, like of all my siblings, like... <laughs> And you know, I like to think that I'm pretty intelligent, but I'm actually the dumbest of all my siblings. So my sisters, especially, like they, you know, got scholarships to high school. They they right. came first. Um, so I wasn't really like the one that they would be having the conversation with about 90 or 95. I did what. <laughs> You know, like, so it was like good enough, but then I, my grades were just never going to be as great as my sisters. So right. that whole, oh, you only got 95%, maybe that would have been a conversation with one of my sisters, but definitely not me. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> all right. So now this interest that, you know, had, you had as a child, it is all like influence what you studied. So now let's go into, into school and we can talk mm-hmm. primarily JSS and then straight into, um, secondary school and then we we'll move on to university. Did it influence the courses you studied? Probably from a from a secondary school level?
1: So in secondary school I was very mouthy because I went to boarding school when I was ten years old
0: okay. and
1: I was like one of the smallest in my class. Yeah, which meant that I couldn't fight physically. So my mouth had to be like my weapon of yeah. you know my yeah. mouth was my weapon choice um so because people used to say oh I was very articulate and I could like I I was confident and not afraid or whatever I always thought people you know how people say oh you're talkative you should be a lawyer right? Mm-hmm. exactly so I, I you know I was like yes I'm going to be a lawyer um and that's what I thought throughout secondary school and then but in secondary school, my my favorite subjects were like government and economics. And those are subjects that I just used to do really well in. And then I went to a school called British School of Loma to do my international baccalaureate after secondary school. So I went to the Education Center for secondary school. And then I went to British School of Loma to do my IB. And then I took business and management. Okay. I just loved my teacher, Dr. Sindel. And you know how like you become so interested in the topic because it is so it's just so relatable and it was about business and I was just so interested in in um business and economics. So I ended up applying to study business and management. Okay. I at, at business school. And then I later on did a master's in development economics at UCL um, straight after my first degree. Okay. So, yeah, I went from thinking I was going to be a lawyer to just finding a subject that I really, really enjoyed and right. decided, actually, this is what I want to do in university.
0: Yeah. So I guess that's to say you didn't have any struggles at all in school. You were acing, you know, all your classes, the exams, everything. It was nothing. Was <laughs> um.
1: I wasn't. I was a good student. Yeah. <laughs> There's definitely subjects that I struggled with more than others. Like I was never good at science subjects ever. Mm, like mm. It was not something that my brain, you know, I could wrap my brain around. Um. So I definitely struggled with science subjects, but I always did well enough to pass. Yeah. Yeah. And the other stuff. <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs>
0: Alright, so we've gotten the, we've gotten the journey, you know, um, interest in, 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 the, in the finance from a young age, so it kind of influenced the subjects you had in secondary school. Did it influence mm-hmm. say, the first job you landed out of school and what was that first
1: job and how easy was it for you to get one? So interestingly enough, my first job was when I was like 16 or 17 years old and I worked in a bank. My parents believed <laughs> that you know, it was important for us to learn about the value of work. This yeah. was so annoying for me because, I mean, I was how old? 16. I, I was, I think I started these internships when just after secondary school mm-hmm. before my international baccalaureate. So I worked at, um, a bank that is called, it's called Sky Bank now, but at the time it was called Prudent Bank. And I remember, having to wake up at five o'clock in the morning, wear a suit that was too big for me, get to the office at eight o'clock. And this thing, I can imagine how this must have felt like a comedic experience for the adults that worked in the bank, right? Because it's like this girl, I was so skinny wearing this oversized suit, coming to work on time because my mom was very, very big on that. I had to be on time. This was not a joke, like... (laughs) You had to take it seriously. You had yeah. to show up and, you know, leave in the evening every day like everyone else. So it wasn't like a plaything. And it was annoying because all my friends were holiday, you know, doing fun stuff. And I basically was like, for this, you know, how many weeks I need to be working. And it was also challenging because, so imagine you're, I think internships in Africa are more um are more widely accepted now but imagine back in the day yeah. where you didn't really see children like in that yep. kind of like just workplaces yep. so I was mostly like ignored so imagine waking up every day in the morning yep. and going into this you know big office and all these adults and they're just like looking at you like what is this one doing here and you know why is she here what is she doing and so for the most part I was always basically sitting down at a desk by myself just looking at everyone and just having to show up and then I started complaining at home being like but they don't even give me anything to do like I'm just you know sitting there my mother is like, well, you're yeah, so good. You better figure it out. Like you better figure out how to make yourself, you know, useful <laughs> while you're there. So I started doing things like creating a database, like for customers, for, okay. you know, clients. So aside from like making coffee, I would go and start asking people, oh, so what is it that you do here? How can I help you? Tell me about like your departments, like the people that would answer me. That became my life, like from that age, throughout like university, I worked in Nigerian banks, but it taught me a lot. It taught me about about follow through. It taught me about you know making yourself valuable regardless of you know, what that looks like. Um, from a really young age, I I remember another time. I think by this time I was in university doing my first degree, and I was I got the opportunity to work at Guarantee Trust Bank, so mm. GTV. Mm. And I was <laughs> I was basically like in a situation where like every day I'm just sitting down and they're looking at me like, well, what is she doing here? I remember this lady who would even say to me, she wouldn't speak to me directly. She would always speak to someone else. Like so I might be right beside her. she would say, Can someone come and tell this girl? That she should move her back from here, or she should go and sit quietly somewhere else. Like she shouldn't sit, you know, next to me. Um, and then there was, but I was determined, you know, to make myself useful, to to learn what I needed to learn. And I remember one time, like a someone who was, she was directly above me, but she wasn't like, she wasn't like a manager or anything. She was like an entry level person herself, right? But you see how. You come into the workplace and you see a person that, now yes. I'm now I'm the boss yes. of this one. <laughs> yeah, like So So she used to give me these different tasks to do. And, oh, my God, for the longest time I hated her because, like, she just used to be us for no reason. Yeah. But she gave me these tasks to do. But one thing I definitely took away from that, you know, experience was, this thing of follow through because she would give me a task to do. And maybe I have to call a few few different departments to get it done. And then I would call them and say, oh, hi, have you done on this transaction? Or can you do on this transaction? And they're like, okay, we'll get back to you. And I'll leave it like that. And then maybe she comes a few hours later and goes, are you done? Like, is it done? And I'm like, oh, yeah, I've called them. And she's like, I didn't ask you to call them. I asked you to get X, Y, Z done for this client and if it's not done, then you've not done the task. Like, I don't care about all the things in between because if it is not done, if the task isn't done, everything else is an excuse. And it used to annoy me because I used to think, but I've done my part. Like what else am I supposed to do? This is not on me. Yeah. But having to go through that over and over again was like a huge life lesson that, you know, that um, I got just going forward, like in my career and just even being an entrepreneur, where a task isn't done until it's done. So all the little obstacles um, in between is called problem solving. And it's not not finished until, you know. So working from such an early age or from such a young age definitely sort of like informed a lot of how I approach things um, now. So it was internship and
0: all, um, which all like has fed into... I can see, you know, um, your experience in in the past, how it's spreaded to who you have become um, today. So, out of that, when you finish university, I still want to just try and understand that first real job in quotes that you that you Mm -hmm. had. Granted, you were working at a very young age because of your because of your home upbringing, but you did your um, your IB, you done your economics and all, and then you land yourself um, a job. Did you have to apply for it, or did they come and seek you out? And
1: where where was that? What was it like? Well, my first job was actually at GTB. My first job in Nigeria was at, at Guarantee Trust Bank. Um and obviously because I had worked there. As an intern. As an intern for many summers, I, it was, I guess, a bit easier. But the, <laughs> so to be fair, my dad was friends with, with the former MD of, yeah. of GTB, Tayo Adirio Kung, and he, even if I had worked there like so many different summers before, he still insisted on an interview like in his office. Yeah. So um I had to go, you know, into his office and he did this sort of like interview with like the head of HR and like asked me all these questions about okay what I wanted to achieve and and you know, what I had been doing, you know, prior to um, working there and all of that. It was very intimidating. But when I think about it now, it was funny because obviously he was going to hire me, but it was just like a formality. <laughs> yeah, it was yeah. just a formality, yeah.
0: And what was one of the toughest questions that you probably got asked on that interview and where you were thinking, come on, I mean, really, I've been here. You know, as you're family friends, why are you you're giving me this grilling question?
1: Um, it wasn't really family friend vibes because mm-hmm. I didn't know him personally. It was still very intimidating. I can't really remember a lot of the questions that he asked me, but I just remember feeling super like intimidated and thinking, Oh my God, I'm in the office of the MD of the bank. <laughs> and, and you know, I don't want to sound stupid. I don't want to, you know, um, but yeah, it was an interesting experience. Yeah. So what was your role? What did they hire you to do? Um, it was an in- entry level role. In the real estate department of commercial banking so basically in the department where like um, institutions who are um, in the real estate industry basically get we manage their loans okay, so you mentioned
0: that you went to do your master's degree um, outside of Nigeria you know and I mean for most people that's the that's the dream right to you know go to um a very extremely developed country you know get um, get your degree and then probably stay and then work and then build you know the future that you see for yourself but however in in your case we find that you came back home to Nigeria so what informed this decision and did you did your friends or family think this, this girl must be crazy
1: um not really because i think back in my time, like, a lot of people were moving back to Nigeria. So it wasn't really a, it wasn't really like, oh, you're crazy for doing this. I guess for me, England had always been in a means to an end in terms of my education. Um okay. I never really saw myself living in England, like, full-time, forever, building a life, you know, there. All right, so I would say...
0: You're done your masters, you're back in Nigeria, you're working in, in GT Bank. Now, at what point in time did your advocacy for financial liter- literacy, especially for African women, at what point in time um, did this begin and what, what inspired that in the first place?
1: Okay, so um, after GTB, at the time at which I started to start doing smart money, I was working in asset management and I basically was in a place in my life where basically my marriage fell apart. I was, I had a one year old child. And I was, what, what which was this? I was 27. Okay. I was 27. My marriage fell apart. I worked in financial services. I had a one year old child and I basically had to start my life again because it was like a bigger aha moment for me when I realized that I didn't have enough saved up Saved and invested in proportion to the income that I earned. Mm. So I basically found myself in a situation where I had to move house in Nigeria. Um, especially at that time, you had to pay two years' rent up front. Mm. You had to pay one year service charge, buy new furniture, all of it, and it was extremely expensive and it drained like my savings. And, and I was like, "Wow, if I don't have the excuse of Saying, oh, I'm a low-income earner, I have a good job, I have, you know, a decent salary. How is this, you know, happening to me? Yeah. clear that I haven't been saving and investing enough in proportion to my income. And who's talking to other women who are like me who, you know, want to live a good life but, you know, don't want to be poor in the future? Who's talking to them about, you know, saving and investing now? So basically, yeah, like I started writing, my advocacy started with writing um, an article called "The Chanel bag versus a stock portfolio for Bella Niger. Okay. Um, And, you know, people really took to it. So I wrote another one and another one and then started, you know, decided to start a blog and then decided to write a book. As you know, that community was growing and it was clear that there was an audience for financial literacy topic or topics or content that was focused on, you know, African problems. Because another thing that I realized when I was trying to get my own finances in order was we can be you look for stuff online and it was mostly about American and European solutions yeah to problems that we didn't necessarily have in Africa so things like credit card problems student debt loan problems, like things like that and it's like well we have debt issues but not in that format so yeah. it became important to me to start addressing um financial literacy issues in an African context um one of the things i think is great about like the books and you know the work that i've been doing is a lot of African women, whether they're Nigerian, whether they're Ghanaian, South Africa and Ugandan, like they see themselves in the characters. They feel like each character kind of um deals with a different pain points when it comes to money, but in a very African context. With things like financial abuse in marriages and all the cultural the cultural significance of how that can happen, right, in Africa, in a way that might not necessarily happen, play out in in Europe or in America, like so, in a marriage in Africa, I feel like women are expected to take on like a lot of the burden. There's this thing about oh, you should be married, or you you're not successful as a woman if you're not married. So I find that when many women, and we don't talk about this a lot, become the female breadwinners, and it's a secret mm, mm. because they are. Because they're looking after their husband, the, the family, they're the ones actually bringing, you know, food to the table. But maybe for many reasons, they can't leave, even if the man is, is spending all the money that they bring on other stuff and they still have to struggle. They can't leave because it's like society is like, at least you have a husband.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: So don't, don't, um, you know, don't spoil that or don't ruin that. Um, so they're, they're just all these different. You know, things that are African, like being a first child and feeling the responsibility of looking after your family, like your siblings and your your parents um, is a very African thing and has very real financial uh, implications. So I think, you know, characters explore these things um, in a unique way. And
0: Why are you doing this in parallel? with still having a regular nine to five or did you did you quit and then do this full time?
1: When I was still doing like the blog and all of that, I was doing, I was still doing a regular nine to five, but when I decided that I wanted to write a book, <laughs> when I, cause I don't know, I think it's something, you see, then my friends definitely thought I was crazy. Like when I said <laughs> I, when I said I was leaving my nine to five job to go, um, and write a book and basically like build this whole smart money, Thing because I was like, there's something here, there's something here. I'm not sure how, but you know, there's something here. Like I can just feel that there's something here. Yeah. And the first product from you know this audience that I've been building, you know, would be a book. That's what seemed like clear to me. But I I kept thinking, okay, if I wrote a book, I don't want to write something that like is just to say I wrote a book, right? Like I want something that people are actually going to read and engage with and talk to their friends about the way they talk about real housewives of atlanta or sex in the city or you know that kind of thing. I really wanted it to be um meaningful. But to be fair, I left my job because I felt that I had like a, at least a one year runway. So if it didn't work out, I would go back to my to my job. Yeah. But where, enough a year into this whole this entrepreneurial journey that cushion that I thought I had in terms of like my backup plan like go back to my job was dragged from right under me because yeah the company started to have issues like they were going through a legal battle which meant that it affected you know everything yeah. so all of a sudden what I thought because I had left with the mindset that... Should this not work uh, out? still had not work Exactly. I'll fall back to, you know, my job. But, so it got to a point where it was like, well, I guess there's no fallback plan now, so this has to work.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it didn't scare <laughs> you in any way, like, this, at all. This has to
1: work. What? Was it scare, scary? Yeah, I'm saying this didn't scare you in any way at all. Oh, I was most definitely scared. But well, you see the thing, I have a child. Yeah. And... <laughs> So I didn't have the um, luxury of wallowing in my fear. Yeah. I had to, I had to hustle. Like I had to, so when people, people are like, oh my God, you're so hard working, Like the way that you're really pushing this book. And I'm like, I don't have, choice. <laughs> <laughs> I do have a choice. I have a choice. I have a choice. If it doesn't work out, it has all kinds of consequences. So yeah. it does, I don't have a choice. Like if things are seeming like they're not working out, I just need to hustle and, you know, try my best to make it work. Yeah. So at what point did you realize that this is
0: actually working? You know, when did the, the your bank alerts start going off and you're like, yes, this is it?
1: <laughs> uh, do you know, so first of all, I feel like I've had many, you know, moments like that. So I think the first one was with the book. Like, the response to the book was, like, a huge shock for me. Like, obviously, I went into it with the mindset that I wanted to do really good work, that people would respond to, and I wanted to put my best foot forward. But, my goodness, like, the response, like, even to now, like, it just blows my mind. Like, when I think about the fact that there are hundreds of thousands of women who have read my book in different parts of the continent and are yeah. so, like, inspired or moved by it. And they moved enough to start to take steps in their own financial lives. I get emails and DMs on a daily basis. And I kid you not, on, there's no day I have woken up since 2016
0: yeah.
1: when I self-published the book that I have not gotten at least one message from someone saying, I read the book, I bought land or I read the book I just started my stock portfolio I read the book and now I'm better at budgeting or I've paid off debt like and I don't know I don't think that there's anything more than even money for me the impact is bigger bigger than money for me like like the impact is bigger than money for me like to know that I created work and put it out in the world and you know it affects so many people like in such a positive way is mind-blowing
0: is that what inspired you to then go on and then do, you know, your second, your second book, for instance? In 16, you self-published your first book, Smart Money Woman, right? <laughs> Best-selling book. Everybody knows you for being the author to that book. But, and it seems like it's, it's been, oh, what would I use? It's been like an easy, it's been served to you on a silver platter, you know, but I'm sure there have been some challenges, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Firstly, financing the book. Getting um, a publishing house to say I'm going to go ahead and then publish this for you. What what was what, what was that like?
1: Well, first of all, I was publishing house, so, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> mm-hmm. so it was it was a very interesting experience. Like and just like everything that I've done since then as well. Like I think that my journey is a testament to the fact that you can, if you decide you want to do something, you can literally. Like, do anything you want to do. If you're, if you're determined that you, you are going to deal with the obstacles, um in between. Because, mm-hmm. I'd never written a book before. I most certainly had never published a book before. And, I most certainly did not know how to navigate the publishing challenges in Africa, you know, at the time. So, I wrote this book, I, you know, I wrote this book, And I knew that I had to self-publish it myself, so obviously it was a lot of... And again, I was also in a position where the financial cushion I thought I had was no longer available, so my personal resources um, in terms of, like, my savings and whatever had to go into, like, investing in this whole book process, and it was a lot of learning as well, so I picked out my learning and, I guess, research, like, so... I knew, okay, I wanted an attractive cover, right? Mm-hmm. I wanted I wanted a book that would sell itself if it was sitting on a shelf. And I wanted something that wouldn't look out of place if it was on a shelf in Europe or America, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and at the time, there was a very interesting thing going on. I Would I say interesting? Just you could tell the difference between the Nigerian books and the international books, right? Mm-hmm. And I didn't want my book to look like a Nigerian book. Mm. So I had to research from everything from, you know, the paper, looking at foreign books that I liked, right? Texture of the paper, the font I wanted to use, the idea that I had, you know, for the book cover to be an illustration. Mm. I ended up, you know, going with Peniel um, Enshul, who is Ghanaian as well. Um, She was amazing. But prior to Peniel, I, I used multiple illustrators or I tried out multiple illustrators and it just it wasn't working in fact one of them sacked me he Mm. was like I'm never going to be able to do what you're looking for so I am done but I guess I was trying to I was expecting European people to depict an African a modern African woman in a way that they couldn't right Mm. so everything from now thinking through okay the book looks good how are we going to price it in a competitive way that's not, you know, way too expensive compared to what, um, is available on the market, but expensive enough to be able to make the profits make sense, right? Yeah. Then there was the issue of distribution because in Nigeria, we don't have, you know, nationwide bookstores like Waterstones or Barnes and Noble's. Oh, okay. We have tiny. You know, we have tiny, it's an Africa problem as well. Well, aside from South Africa, South Africa has exclusive books. But in most parts of Africa, like it's tiny bookstores that are not chains or whatever. And you basically have to navigate all of that. So in Nigeria, I had to get very creative. I had to start thinking, okay, my target audience for this book are African women. Where do they go to on a normal basis every day anyway? So it was things like supermarkets, it was things like pharmacies, because the pharmacies in Nigeria are not just, They're just drug, stores. It's, not drug stores. it's exactly cosmetics, you know, things like that. Um leveraging my relationship with House of Tara because I'm on the board of House of Tara. Um and using their distribution network to sell the books. So they had stores, multiple stores in about twenty something locations so i was able to use them health plus also had about 50 something locations so i was able to use them as well so basically leveraging other people's distribution channels besides from just focusing solely on bookstores in nigeria yeah so i guess it brings us to the value of the network you create right
0: because i mean from your Mm -hmm. experience and listening to you definitely you are the one who's driving all of this right you are challenging all this, the thought process, where to go, et cetera, but you still had to reach out and depend on people who were around you, you know, and can you, like, just give us highlights of that, the importance of that to being successful?
1: Oh, definitely. Like, my motto in life is your network is your net worth." and, you know, people tend to think they say, but they don't really think about how important it is or the nitty-gritty of, you know, how that works, Right. So for me, I want something that I may may not have access to or don't have. But my mindset is I have to know at least three to five people who know the person who has access to that, you know, that particular thing. And I think that your level of access is determined by how valuable your network is. Mm. Right. So there are many things that, you know, I've accomplished that I definitely could never have done alone I'm someone who is always investing in my relationships I think that my mentors for example were very very significant in helping me make you know the book a success like I had things like I remember Health Plus for example being a pharmacy didn't sell books at the time so one of the biggest challenges was convincing Bookie George who was the CEO of Health Plus that my book was going to do well and it will be worth, you know, selling. And in order to do this, one of my mentors, Osai Lile, stalked her. <laughs> <laughs> he stalked her. Like, obviously, they know each other, they're friends and all of that, but she was like, you are going to give this girl a chance. Like, whether it meant, you know, calling her every day, sending her emails, like, it was months, like, of, you know, trying to, you know, trying to convince them because... They were just like, and with the loss of supermarkets and things like that, this was an issue. They were like, with books, they don't move quickly, one. Two, they don't move quickly and they're pilfered a lot. And then we'll have a situation where we're taking stock and then we have to now um, (laughs) pay back because it's either destroyed or somebody has stolen it and all of that. So there was a lot of skepticism about it. But you see, the the different thing about my book was that I had created a – huge demand on social media so people just needed to know where they could find it it. yeah (laughs) so I remember because prior to the book coming out I was already having all these distribution conversations some worked out some you know didn't work out but I remember even like Terra Culture which is a bookstore like here and one again one of my mentors owns Terra Culture um Mr. Austin Peters and I remember her standing me to the people and they were like, well, you know, we usually take 10 to 15 books. Um, no, we usually take five to 10 books actually is what they said to me. And then, you know, when, as people buy, you get like, we'll reach out to the author and order. Yeah. I was like, what am I going to do with a, with books? Like five to 10 books. Like what am I going to do? She was like, don't worry. You know, like new authors, this is like the manager, like things. to me, new authors usually, they always get overexcited. I then obviously go and speak to my mentor and say, oh, please, can you talk to them? Like, they're being, you know, quite difficult. And she speaks to them. And anyway, they come back and they're like, okay, we can take 15 to 20 copies. right? <laughs> can tell me 15 or 100. 15 to 20. And I remember thinking, wow. But she explained something to me. She, she was like, see, this bookstore is small, so we don't have the capacity to keep stock. Here, especially if it doesn't like move quickly. So I was yeah. just like, okay, let me just start. So by the time you know people started buying it from Terraculture, they were then ordering like fifty copies, a hundred copies, like at a time, and it was going so quickly. And I remember the TerraCulture manager like calling and being like, What is inside this book? I don't understand <laughs> it. Like people are literally coming here and they start threatening us like if you know it's out of stock or whatever. Like so the demand was so it was huge. It was huge. But then it then caused a piracy issue, right? Where there was this high demand and I guess the supply that we were creating for it was not fulfilling that demand. So it's first there was digital piracy. So people selling to each other on, you know, WhatsApp and and all of that. I know people feel like they're doing me a favor when they're reading it on things like that, but you're mm-hmm. actually costing money. And then it graduated to people selling it on the streets. It was very painful, but it was a double-edged sword in that it helps the popularity of the book. Because people were reading soft copies of it and sharing it unencumbered, I feel like the book went further than it would have gone, but it just still sucks that pirates were making more money from the book. Because think about it, if Michelle Obama, like, publishes, you know, a book, Son has already paid her an advance in, you know, hundreds of thousands or millions. So uh, when you see her book on the streets of Accra, it's like, I, I'm not sure that she cares that much because she's already made her money, it's just reaching more people. But when you're an African entrepreneur or you're an African author who basically eats from this, it's a little bit different because you've, aside from like the creativity of putting a book like that together, you have to also worry about the business side of things. And you have to think about the marketing, the distribution, all of that, like all the stuff that, you know, the publishing house abroad would look after, like you would basically be leveraging on their own machinery and they would be paying you to do it. But with me, I had to create my own machinery. So mm. it was hard that it was hard to deal with the fact that like, you know, there are people who are benefiting off of my work or profiting off of my work illegally.
0: Basically. Yeah. Yeah. But then there's really nothing much that you could do about that, right? Like you said, I think you looked at it at the positive end in terms of, okay, so the book is getting wider, wider reach.
1: Yeah. Definitely something that we're working on, like, in terms of, like, how do you tackle piracy in Africa? It does damage, right? Like, I know, like, we like free stuff, but why am I inspired to write a third book if it's going to be pirated? Mm. I have no incentive, you know, to want to... So people are like, oh, when's when's the next book? When's the next book? But did you read it? Did you buy it on Amazon? Did um, Did you buy an actual copy or did you read? Why am I inspired to... Or what incentivizes me to write a book, spend another year and a half writing a book only for someone to pirate it. And it's tough, but hopefully now that we've done the transition to making the book into a TV series, I'm hopeful that like this is, you know, another way of kind of like creating the content that we want to create, but in a way that's monetizable on a different scale, right? So the with the book, I basically had to be thinking about how to sell to my audience, how to sell to institutional investors. But with the T V series now we have things like Netflix and Amazon and people who can see the value of your content, say, okay, we're gonna pay X for it and it actually makes sense. Yeah?
0: In terms of the in terms of the actual books, how many copies were were sold?
1: Mm, Over a hundred thousand a hundred thousand copies of the book were sold.
0: So based on that, you you saw like I think you have stressed a bit on the on the piracy bit and how that costs money. So would you still say at the end of it all, oh, when you still look at the you know
1: everything in totality, was the book still profitable? It was profitable, but it could have been way more profitable because mm-hmm. if you think about it, like there are people who who are literally let me give you examples. <laughs> there are people who are literally selling the book on WhatsApp. Mm. for a thousand naira now the book was five thousand naira Mm. now it's easy for you to sell it on whatsapp for a thousand naira because you didn't write it you've not put any resources into uh, you know producing it right so you've basically stolen some someone's work Mm. and you're selling it for one thousand naira and no cost to yourself right yeah and it's even a stupid business model because there are lots of people who can who can, um, who can like just take care and not pay you or send it yeah. to other people? Yeah. You know, you're not, you know, there's no customer retention or whatever, but it's easy for them because they, there's no skin in the game, right? Or the pirates who have basically like a distribution network that spans from all over Lagos, like all over Nigeria, right? Mm-hmm. To Kenya, Ghana, all of those places. They've taken my book and they've printed it in China at a very low cost while I'm busy doing, you know, buy Nigerian and producing in Nigeria and yeah. all of that. So they have the volume and the distribution network. So where I'm there saying, oh, I want to sell a book for 5,000 naira, I help plus. They are, they have thousands of people like are across, you know, the country that are in different markets that they're all selling things for each other. So for example, it's a network. So for example, maybe I sell toys, right? I'm going to now distribute the units of toys that I have across those things. And those people are now going to, maybe another person sells books. They're going to give me some of those books. I'll give them some of the toys and like that, right? So they have a very like informal or very powerful like distribution network. So you can imagine the the, um, the volumes. I've spoken to some of these pirates, by the way. Like, <laughs> okay. have actually, you know, like tried to sort of like negotiate with me to say, okay, how can we pay so that we can be the only ones, you know, that are selling it? And just from my understanding, it's a huge,
0: network. Huge network. network.
1: Like, and there's a lot of yeah corruption going on there with people being, you know, bribed to not take action and, and things like that. It's very... It's very complicated and very, you know, exhausting. But I guess the question now becomes, how do you want to spend your energy? Fighting the boys in Alaba, having over piracy issues. And do you get what I mean? Like, it's it's a very complex one. But, yeah. I mean, let's
0: delve a little deeper into um, now that it's become a TV series on Netflix. You know, so you're like you said, the audience is, is going to be even, even, even more. Um, did you have to do this, you know, um, yourself, try and get the partnership signed, get it on board? Like basically, you know, all the grueling stuff you had to deal with to get your book out, the first book out, was this all like the same process or had the book already built that stepping stone for you? So this was easy, easy peasy. <laughs> well,
1: I always to people like that during the TV series was a steep, steep, steep learning curve for me. So you would think that, okay, I'd written the book, I had gone on this Pan-African book tour to several yep. African countries. And the book was doing really well, so it would be a no-brainer if I approached, you know, Brian to say, oh hey, I want to make this into a TV series, but well, hell no, it was not. <laughs> I got so many doors shut in my face. I got so many no's because I guess thinking about it now, I probably sounded crazy because they were like, okay, you wrote a book. Congratulations. It was, <laughs> there's no denying it was, it was amazing, but, um, you've never produced anything on this scale before, so why are we going to trust you with this money to to produce it? And, you know, one of the big things for me was even just learning about, like, the business model for TV series in Nigeria, like, how does it work and how does it make money? Um, And there was a lot of, you know, like, everything in Africa, like, it's not straightforward, right? So I figured out at some point that the best way to monetize this tv series was going to be cuz at the time there was one maybe one or two nigerian movies on netflix right at the time yeah. Yeah. and no one knew for a fact like how much they got paid or yeah. Yeah. you know, the process it it was still very like much a guessing game right so i wanted to to be on netflix like i wanted it to get on netflix but I also knew that that was not, from where I was at the time, it wasn't a realistic outcome to hedge all of my bets on, right? So it now became, okay, so what is the business model if this doesn't get to Netflix? Like, how do people get their money is worth or, or, like, the value, like, if it doesn't get to Netflix? So it became, let's put it on a terrestrial TV channel or um, a local TV channel and then promise brands. Marketing and advertising, product placements, advertising um, in exchange for funds, right? So this is me approaching several different banks, saying, "Hey, so this book, financial literacy, paired with entertainment, it's going to be a thing because people. This thing comes with an inbuilt audience, so it's a non, it's a no-brainer, and it's I will help you sell your products and services to a an audience that's looking for solutions to their pain points with money but it was not it was not an easy conversation it was in fact there were so many no's um and eventually um first bank was the first bank to be like okay we'll take that step with you and i think it was primarily because of mrs Awashika, who was the chairman of the board of first bank at the time and she was also the chairman of the board that i served on um house of tara okay so I had access. So again, your network is your network. I'm on the board of House of Tara, a beauty and cosmetics company. Yeah. It's and awesome. you know, Oshika is on the board of that as well. So one day after a board meeting, I approach her and I'm like, and she saw, so I will to walked my book into a TV series. I had like this high level pitch and she was like, actually, okay, let's make an appointment. Come and, you know, tell me about it in my office. And basically, After that, she thought it was a great idea. She, but then she's so big on like corporate, um, governance. So she Mm -hmm. sent me to the team and I kid you not, it took like nine months before Mm -hmm. they signed the contract. Yep. And it wasn't going to fully, what they were giving was never going to fully fund the entire production. So it was imperative that I found other people, right? So I I had their money to start. But I needed to convince MasterCard, I needed to convince Unilever, I needed to convince Virgin Atlantic, I needed to convince Airtel Um wow. come on board. And this was at different stages. So, yeah, like it wasn't, it was, again, me having to deal with the creative side of stuff, but then also having to figure out like the business side of it. So who, who, you know, what are the right brands? you know, creating pitch decks, you know, to come to explain to them what value they were going to get. The production side as well, like, just think about it. Like, I didn't go to film school. (laughs) I didn't go to film school. I hadn't worked in production or in entertainment. So I didn't, I'd produce smaller things, like smaller talk shows for, like, business day and stuff that were financial literacy focused. But I had never done anything like on this scale before. So the production side as well was very, very it was very tasking like to learn. It was very tasking to sort of put the right group of people together to make sure that we um my vision was brought to life. Every time I think about it, my mind is so blown because Osas, Ini Dimma, Okoje, Tony Tones, all the actresses that I got to be on the thing, like The fact is, it wasn't because I was paying them, like, the most money. Some of them rejected jobs. They were paying them even more Mm. money than me. But they have so much faith that this is going to be, like, a hit. And I'm like, I'm still trying to figure out what I'm doing. I don't know what I'm doing. So you're putting (laughs) your career in my hands hands at your own risk. I think it's best that you know that I don't know what I'm doing, right? (laughs) I'm just figuring it out you know, as I go along, because I was determined that I wasn't just going to hand this off to someone like a producer to say, oh, this is my book, go and produce it because I don't know anything about production. I didn't want to take the risk that someone was going to sort of butcher the vision that I had for it. Like if I, I just felt like if I was going to do this, I was going to do it in my own way and do my my best in a way that I would be proud of. So yeah, it was a lot of learning and a lot of bringing people together to achieve a common goal. Do you have a core team or have you
0: basically leveraged on people who um, are in the industries in which you need support for? Or do you now have yourself a core team? Because it sounds like it's still solely you.
1: So I do have a core team, less than five people. Okay. But What we do is we, on a project by project basis, we mm-hmm. leverage on other people's like sort of like expertise and all of that. I'm still at a stage where a lot of this is coming from my head. A lot yeah. of this is coming, yeah. you know, from my vision. One of the things that I really want to be able to do is build capacity, like to build a bigger team so that we can do this on a bigger scale. But yeah, like a lot of it, because I think for me, because there was a lot of figuring out, like now people, it's easy for people to be like, oh, my God, it's so successful and it's so, you know, of course it was it, it it worked out. But think about it. Like, if I told anybody that I was writing a book, well, I did tell people I was going to write a book that was a fictional story, but it would have small money lessons at the end of each chapter. It sounds stupid. It doesn't sound like anything that young African people would be that interested in. It would just be like, mm, okay, I, I can see how that could be. <laughs> Do you get know what I mean? Like, if again, prior to even the series doing well on Netflix, if you told people, especially I had to go through this, trying to tell banks and trying to tell, oh, we're doing an entertainment thing, but it's financially <laughs> focused, they're going to look at you like, that, that's my thing. It's not, <laughs> you mix it, the two. it's not, fin- Finance is stuff. <laughs> yeah. Like, you can't mix the two. It won't bang. So what what made what was so interesting for me as well was how banks were willing to put money in concerts. Mm-hmm. They were willing to put money in in mm-hmm. um sports, you know, <laughs> TV shows, and things like that. Like yeah, they weren't willing to to they couldn't see the vision of this is going to help us. This is tackling something that is at the core of our business, right? Yeah. We have products and services that act as solutions to these pain points that are being highlighted. It was a no brainer for me, but in telling like trying to convince all these other people, it was like, wow, how can you not see this? (laughs) (laughs) How can you not see this? So it, it it was very interesting to me. Like when, when it aired, like people were, you know, FBN quest was trending. People were talking about, um, Different things like, oh, I want to talk to a financial advisor or I wish I had an amorphous day or, you know, things like that, like things that actually drive conversations about your products and services, like in a real way, as opposed to, oh, you know, what is just solely popular.
0: So now are they coming after you? All those who
1: gave you the nose? Cause now we on Netflix boo. We were number one in Nigeria, trending in the US, top 10 in Trinidad and Tobago, Jamaica, you know, places like that. So anybody that is a brand that wants talk to me in season two come correct because we're no longer we're not we're no we're no longer um you know begging. We're no longer being like, Oh yeah, please understand this It's now like do you wanna be on this? <laughs> do we even have the space for you? It's interesting.
0: Nice. So tell us future plans, future plans because I know you have many, 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 many. We we can tell.
1: Yeah. So what's the future, future plan? plan? The future plans, we're currently in the process of raising capital for season two yeah. of Small Money Woman. Um, and then we're hoping to develop other, like, TV shows. One is called Capital Gains around Timmy Egerson, and it's about the capital markets. And another one is called Lagos City Paid. It's around Tony Tones, and it's about real estate. So they're all shows Around financial literacy for the African millennial, but fun, entertaining. Um, so yeah, I'm just busy with developing that now and going through like the capital raising process. Yeah.
0: And where are your proud parents in all of this? Oh my God. (laughs) I think,
1: I think the biggest thing for my parents was this Netflix. Like when it was on Netflix and people were like calling them and saying, yeah. Oh my god, like you know, Aristotle this. You know, so yeah, my parents are very, very proud. Um they're very, very proud. They they I think they're still like, Wow, I can't believe that you did this. I can't believe that, you know, we watched you do this and through a very difficult time, um yeah. for our family as well. Like it was just it was just interesting, like, you know, to see their reaction. But one of the things I always say that is important to me is to make my parents proud. I always say that my favorite compliment that I get from my dad is, your school fees money, no waste. Yeah. So. <laughs> so I just feel like the investment that they made in me did not go, you know, yeah. to waste. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, I'm very happy that they're proud.
0: Sure. I would say, so on Africa's Business Rockstars, we have what we like to call the Rockstars quotes. And even though we do say it's a quote, it's, it's anything basically that, you know, spurs you on or keeps you going or that mantra, you know, that lets you wake up from bed. So what would be your Rockstars quote?
1: Mm-hmm. They're no small ideas, just big execution. Nice. Nice.
0: I like. <laughs> I like. Nicely said. So you hear that. There's no idea that's too small. It's just the execution that is big. Um, if you've been listening to Africa's Business Rockstars, and our guest has been Irsa, Best-selling author you know, mm-hmm. number one, trending, <laughs> Smart by One on Netflix. Make sure you check it out and I just want to say thank you so much for your time. You know, you have a very busy schedule but you made time to finally, you know, get to um, talk to us and I hope <laughs> you enjoyed the
1: conversation. Yes, thank you so much. Thank you so, so much for having me.